For those of us who follow Jesus, we have a book. It isn't a theology book. It isn't a rule book. This book is a story. A story of God and humanity. A story Jesus said he was fulfilling. This book contains poems, riddles, letters, puzzling narratives, and new ideas. Yet, throughout it all, this book is full of the breath of God. For those of us who follow Jesus, this book is a treasure. This book is a tree of life. This book is a page turner. Turn the page with us. Okay, how many of you started the 30-day Bible reading plan found on the Prodigal app? Okay, then how many of you, after two days, kind of slowly trailed off with that rhythm? Uh, we just want to say that that's okay, that that's normal, and it's no big deal, okay? We're all on this journey together. If you have your Bibles, would you open it now to the Old Testament? And if you don't know where that is, just open up your Bible, and you have a 67% chance of getting it correct, okay? The Old Testament takes up two-thirds of what we call the Bible. And we mentioned this last week, but the Bible is actually not a book, okay? I know it looks like a book because it has two covers and pages in between, but the Bible actually isn't a book. It's a collection of books, 66 books, independent, but interconnected. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books, okay? How are you gonna remember that? The word old has three letters. The word testament has nine letters, three, nine, 39 books in the Old Testament. New Testament has 27 books. How are you gonna remember that? Well, there's three letters in the word old, nine in the word testament, three times nine is 27, 27 books in the New Testament. You're welcome, okay? Today, we're going to tell the story of the Old Testament in 20 minutes. And of course, there will be details that will be left out, stories I will miss, but when we begin to see the grand narrative of Scripture and we can see where events and places and people fall into the grand narrative, it really helps us better understand the Bible. So let's do this, okay? Our story starts in the beginning uh, with creation. God has never had a beginning. And if you think about that very long, you will, you will have a headache, okay? Your mind will hurt. Um, he always was. Time itself was in fact a creation. And in the beginning, God creates the heaven and the earth. That is the first line from the Bible. God creates and it is good. He says it is very good. You see, before there was original sin, there was original blessing. God created and it was good. And when this creation story was composed, when it was written, uh, it stand and stood in radical contrast to the creation narratives of other ancient cultures. And creation is good, but with Adam and Eve and humanity comes the fall. Sin enters creation. And the first 11 chapters covers Adam to Abraham, okay? Noah's in there, the Tower of Babel is in there. We can call this prehistory. And it's not that it actually didn't happen, it's that the, the point of these narratives is theological more than historical. And when we hit Genesis chapter 12, something significant happens. Something momentous happens in the history of humanity. 
Check out this in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, his name will eventually become Abraham. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the Abrahamic covenant. And now in human history, we are roughly at the year 2000 BC. And later on in chapter 12, God promises to give Abraham this land just east of the Mediterranean Sea that we now call Israel or Palestine. And something happens here in human history, something so significant that the three great monotheistic traditions of the world believe that they are the true continuation of this covenant. The Jewish people believe that they are the true continuation of the Abrahamic covenant. The Muslims believe that they are the true continuation of the Abrahamic covenant. And Christians believe that they are the true continuation of the Abrahamic covenant. And the rest of the Old Testament really tells the story of this man, Abraham, his children, and the nation they would become. And honestly, we could stop there because the rest of the Old Testament tells how they would become powerful and how they would become weak. It tells of how they obeyed God and how they disobeyed God, how they fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant and how they fell so very short of the covenant God made with Abraham, how God sends priests and prophets to help Israel course correct to become the people they are called to be, and that, that really that could be the final summary of the Old Testament. But since we have about 15 more minutes or so, let's dive into more detail. After God makes this covenant with Abraham, he and his wife eventually have a son, who then has another son, right? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And the grandson of Abraham is named Jacob, and Jacob's name eventually gets changed to Israel. And, and the names are significant. Jacob means deceiver or heel grabber. Israel means to wrestle with God. Israel has 12 children who eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. The name Israel, which, which is synonymous with the people of God, literally means to wrestle with God, to be the people of God, or to be a group of people who are wrestling with the divine. And Israel grows into a nation. But there are more people in other nations, more powerful nations. And in this time, the most powerful nation was Egypt. So, like you do in the ancient world, the more powerful nation enslaved the less powerful nation. Egypt enslaved Israel. Israel is supposed to be blessed by God, to be a blessing to the world, and now they're slaves. Now they're building the Egyptian empire. And they are slaves for 400 years, and they cry out to God with no answer until a Hebrew who was raised in Pharaoh's household is now uh, exiled from Egypt in shepherding a flock in the Midian desert and he sees a bush that is on fire and yet it is not consumed. And from the bush, God Almighty cries out, Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses eventually goes before Pharaoh and demands, let my people go. This is the Exodus. This is Israel's formational story, that they were slaves in Egypt, but God freed them. 
And this is now roughly 1500 BC. Okay, we're moving along in the timeline. And these descendants of Abraham's, they leave Egypt and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. It is in this wilderness season that God gave them the laws that would shape their culture, their life, and their worship. And so because this is such a formative time in the life of Israel, let's kind of zoom in on this season. It is in the wilderness where God gives them the law, right, at, at Mount Sinai. And in the law, there is some normal stuff, stuff that you're probably familiar with, like the Ten Commandments. But then there's, there, there's some weird things. There's some weird stuff given in the law. There's a lot of talk about priests and sacrifices and blood and goats. I was a youth pastor for 11 years. And when you are teaching the Old Testament to teenagers, you got to get creative. And so one night we were going through the book of Leviticus, which is a lot about sacrifice and tabernacle worship. Um, it's part of the law. It was given to God's people in the wilderness. And so this one particular youth group night, we got a goat. Okay? We asked a farmer in our church who let us borrow a goat. The goat's name was Billy, okay? This Billy Goat. And uh, we, we tied him to a post in the back of the youth room. And as kids walked in, um, they were feeding Billy. They were taking selfies with Billy, posting it to Instagram. They were laughing, having a great time. He was pooping everywhere, and the teenagers loved it. And then we start the youth service, and we have worship. And we begin to sing the song, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And nobody's really catching on. And then I begin my sermon talking about the sacrificial system in ancient Israel. And as I'm talking, we had our staff lay out this massive tarp near the stage, near the altar. And as I begin telling how a priest would prepare an animal for sacrifice, one of our leaders slowly walks Billy through the middle of the audience between all the chairs and dramatically hands him to me. And it becomes so tense in the room. The tension is so thick that you can cut it with a knife, which I then pulled out of my back pocket as I lifted Billy's neck up and exposed his throat and got ready to, and there's people crying. A girl says, John, don't do it, don't do it. Students are crying. There's lots of people very emotional about Billy. I immediately dropped the knife and go, I'm not gonna slit the goat's throat, but they were losing their mind over it because they thought I was gonna kill him. And the illustration was to show the bloody nature of sacrifice, okay? The seriousness of our actions. Okay, I was fired later that night. So there are all these weird and seemingly barbaric ancient laws in this part of the Bible. How many of us have said, I'm gonna read through the Bible this year, and you make it through Genesis, and you're like, I can do it. And then you barely make it through Exodus, and you're like, okay, I'm making a dent. And then you get to Leviticus and you're like, well, maybe next year. It might sound barbaric now, but it was so radical and such a huge leap forward to all of the ancient laws of that time. The Old Testament law and the civil code of ancient Israel were absolutely mind-blowing in their culture. It was a massive step forward in the cause of justice. See, God is like a good father and he always accommodates to our capacity. If a five-year-old asks, where do babies come from? They get a different answer than when a 15-year-old asks that question. And the 15-year-old gets a different answer than a medical student gets when they ask that question. See, everybody accommodates 
to the capacity of their audience, the capacity of their children. God does the same. The Hebrew law was superior in every way to the religious, civil, and moral codes of the ancient world. The protections and care offered for the most vulnerable were nothing short of revolutionary compared to the nations surrounding them. Women were better protected and had more rights. Servants and slaves were better protected and had more rights. Foreigners were better protected and had more rights. They all fared better in Israel under Old Testament law than in any other ancient nation. And so the law was given and it was to ensure that Israel would be different, that they would be set apart, holy. And that's what holy means. It means set apart, to set apart from everyone else, set apart, different. God was to be their king. And after 40 years of wandering the wilderness, they are led into the promised land, the land that was promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And once they finally got what they always wanted, they wanted more. So they made a wish. And God had warned them about this wish. He tells them in the law that this wish is not a good idea, but they insist and God says, as you wish. The very wish which was to be their downfall. What was it? Well, their wish was to be like everyone else. They didn't want to be holy. They didn't want to be set apart. Israel wanted a king like all the others. And so Israel began to depend on their military like all the others. Israel began to trust in false gods like all the others. Israel built the temple like all the others. The powerful and elite in Israel began to oppress the poverty-stricken lower class like all the others. The religion in Israel did nothing to change the way they treated their neighbor, just like the others. Israel's kings built castles and palaces and made treaties with foreign nations like all the others. And slowly but surely, Israel ceased to be a holy nation set apart to bless the world, just like all the others. You want a king like everyone else? God says, in a sense, as you wish. And the kingdom of Israel began in roughly 1000 BC. Israel's first king was Saul. And Saul dropped the ball. Okay, he messed up. He's replaced by Israel's greatest king, David. He certainly wasn't perfect either. Okay, remember, he went to Bed Bath and Beyond. Okay, check that story out if you don't know what I'm referencing. Then it was under David's son Solomon where the first temple was constructed. And then it divides into two nations. The southern nation is Judah. The northern nation is Israel. Uh, the, the southern nation has one dynasty, one line of kingship. It's always one of David's sons or descendants that stays king. The northern nation has over 19 different dynasties. And they are destroyed in roughly 722 um, by the Assyrians. Okay, they cease to exist. The Samaritans trace their lineage from this conquest, where the Assyrians basically bred the Hebrew out of them, and they became half-breeds. Hence why, part of the reason why they're looked at so down upon in the New Testament. The southern nation of Judah lasts longer, but not much longer. They succumb to the Babylonian army in 586 BC under the power of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this whole time, God is sending prophets 
uh, to the nation saying, come on guys, it's not too late. Quit caring about your palaces and your castles and start caring for the poor and the people around you. Quit offering me sacrifices and offer yourselves in love to others. They began to trust in religion and in religious activities rather than trusting their God. This is how one of the ancient prophets confronted the nation of Israel. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and fat uh, and fattened calves. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Now come let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. This was the prophet Isaiah. And this was much of the message of the prophets sent to Israel, sent to Judah, and sent to the surrounding nations. This is Elijah and Jeremiah. This is Elijah and Elisha. This is Amos and Hosea. God sent prophet after prophet to both nations, the southern nation of Judah and the northern nation of Israel. But he also sent them to the surrounding nations, right? Remember Jonah? Where was he sent? To a place called Nineveh. Well, where was that? It was the capital of Assyria, the nation that conquered Israel. God sent a prophet to Israel's enemy. God's heart was not always only for the nation of Israel. It was always for the whole world. And that was at the core of the Abrahamic covenant, right? You shall be a blessing to the world. The earth will be blessed through you. Check out this verse in Amos chapter 9. Okay? Amos was a prophet during the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. He was just a shepherd, and then he was called to speak into the nation, to pr try and get them to course correct. And he writes this, Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Arameans from Kerr? This verse would have absolutely rocked ancient Israel because it tells us that the Exodus, Israel's penultimate event, defining event as God's people, was when he freed them from Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, but they were rescued by God. What this passage in Amos is telling us is that the Exodus wasn't the only Exodus that the Cushites had an exodus, that the Philistines had an exodus, that the Arameans had an exodus. The prophet Amos is declaring that Israel isn't the only nation that God cares about. God doesn't only care about them, he also cares about their enemies. The Philistines were the enemies of the people of God throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And this was probably too much for God's people to comprehend. They were just too enamored with being just like everyone else. You don't want me to be king? You want to be like everyone else? And so, as a kingdom of this world, you will end up like all the kingdoms of this world.
In 586, the people of God are taken to Babylon, where they sat by rivers and wept about the land they had lost. No longer in the promised land that was promised to their forefathers. They are now in pagan territory by the rivers of Babylon. And eventually some are sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall of the city and to rebuild the temple itself. This is, you'll find some of these stories in the book of Ezra or Nehemiah. Some begin to thrive. Some of the people of God begin to thrive in their new lands. You'll find these stories in the book of Daniel or in the book of Esther. But the kingdoms of this world that conquered Israel also succumbed to other kingdoms of this world. Assyria was overtaken by Babylon. Babylon was overtaken by Persia. And it is in this period of time, the time of the Persians, where the Old Testament stops. There is silence for 400 years. In this period of time in history, from the year roughly 400 BC to uh, the time of Jesus, is this intertestamental period. Our Bibles have no scriptures during this time. Now, the Catholic Bible is different. The Catholic book, Bible has uh, some books from this period of time, when, when Greece uh, was ruling over Israel. And they are an interesting read, and they're very, very historical, but they're not included in the Bible. More on that in weeks to come. And in the time period, uh, in this intertestamental period, the Persians were overtaken by the Greeks under Alexander the Great, and the Greeks were conquered by the Romans. And it is in the time of the Romans in which Jesus shows up on the scene. That is the Old Testament. A messy story about an ancient, violent, nomadic, wild, tribal people group called by God to be a blessing to the world. And their continual refusal of this calling. And then being enamored with the kingdoms of this world instead of being enamored with God. It's messy. It's violent. The Old Testament is not nice and neat. But this story is how God wades into the fray and plays by the rules of the kingdoms of this world in order to usher in a kingdom not of this world. And to skip or to bypass the Old Testament, to bypass the behavior that we find in it, is to miss the mess that God enters into to save us. To show us how to live. We cheapen the incarnation and the crucifixion by refusing to look at the mess of the world that God came to save. How do these 39 books, written all over the ancient world, by lots of different authors and editors and scribes, how do they tie together? I submit to you that there is a scarlet thread. That Jesus is there, even when Jesus wasn't there. He kept pursuing Israel, even when Israel stopped pursuing him. The Bible is a hymn book. It's about him. It points us to him. It's all about him. May we have eyes to see Jesus in the books before Jesus. In Genesis, he's the breath of life. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the sacrifice that ends sacrifice. In Numbers, he's our fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's our high priest. In Ruth, 
he's our redeemer. In Samuel, he's our true king. In the Psalms, he's our morning song. In the Son of Solomon, he is our beloved and we are his. In Isaiah, he's the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, he's the weeping prophet. In Daniel, he's the stranger in the fire. And in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, he is the son of righteousness who is coming with healing in his name. Is there anybody who's thankful that Jesus is on every page of the Old Testament and that we too get to be a part of the Abrahamic covenant? Even if we are not literally or physically uh, a descendant of Abraham, we are heirs of his promise in Christ. We are a continuation of the Abrahamic covenant to be blessed by God, to be a blessing to the world. God, I pray in Jesus' name that we see ourselves as a continuation of this story, that we are Israel and Israel is us. We are the ones who wrestle with the divine, who are called to be a blessing to this world. And so Jesus, empower us to do this. God, we could never keep the law, the 613 commands that are given there. We know that. But God, we can find forgiveness, life, abundant life, and love in you. And thank you for the ways in which your scriptures, the Old Testament, points us to that. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. Next week, we tackle week three of our Binge Reading the Bible series. And we want to encourage you to download our app and check out the Bible reading plan and to read the Bible throughout the week and come with questions um, and find someone to visit with and have coffee with. You could call us. Our team would love to visit and hang out and discuss and wrestle with the scriptures together. You can also sign up for small groups. That's not too late to come and join in week two as we wrestle with the scriptures together. Let's binge read the Bible this October. We love you. We hope you have a great week. Peace in the Middle East.